Welcome to Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean texts and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com, where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 163. We are still in the middle of chapter 8 of Norman DeWitt's book, and we're on the section entitled Anticipations. Last week in episode 162, Joshua was not with us, but this week we have Joshua back and we have Don. So we're going to bring our full powerhouse of podcasters to this topic, which deserves it because it is a very complicated thing to talk about, and there are almost as many different opinions about what anticipations are as there are commentators who write about it. And that's one of the things we'll discuss today is hopefully bring you an introduction to the general positions that people take so that you can study into it yourself and come up with what you think yourself is most likely to be the truth. Before we get back into the anticipations today, however, I think it would be helpful to drop back and remind everybody what we're talking about in terms of where the anticipations fit in in Epicurean philosophy. In general, what we're talking about is the Epicurean canon of truth, and perhaps with the exception of the word of, both canon and truth of those three words can be interpreted in many different ways. And it would be worthwhile to talk about what that means and therefore what we should expect to see as we dive into the details of the canon of truth. When you think about the word canon, it's a measure or a standard, and it's not the content itself. In other words, when you're building a wall, you have stones to work with and you have measuring tools to help you assemble it in a straight and true direction. And DeWitt is emphasizing that you should never confuse the straight edge that you use to assemble the wall with the stones themselves, the content. And there's the word truth, which Pontius Pilate asked about Jesus. And what is truth is a very, very complicated issue. In this context, it seems to me that what we're talking about is canon is best translated probably as measure or standard. So it's not truth itself that we're talking about, apparently. It's how to measure truth. And what you measure truth with is something besides the truth itself. Whenever you measure anything, you hold it up against something that you know with confidence is a standard, like a yardstick or a ruler. The yardstick or the ruler allows you to measure the length of a particular object. But other than the length of the object, the ruler doesn't tell you anything about that object other than its length. So when we're talking about, for example, the sensations as a standard of truth, for example, the eyes and sight as a component of the sensations, which are a standard of truth. The eyes are telling you things about an object that you see, such as its color, its shape, its size. Even those words that I'm using to describe are conceptual words, but they're giving you raw data about the thing that you're looking at. And if you've got a four-legged animal with a long neck and a long tail with hoofs in front of you, the eyes are not identifying that for you as a horse. The eyes are providing data to your mind, which your mind processes and concludes as part of a separate process that what you're seeing is a horse. 
Tell me if you guys agree or disagree with that or have a better way to explain what a standard of truth would be. Well, I'll jump right into the deep end here, I suppose, and say that I think one of the things that Epicurus is trying to get across with this whole idea of the canon and everything is that there is an external world that exists outside of ourselves. We can have access to that world through our sensations and our anticipations and our feelings. And I think that that was one of the things that he was establishing because he was fighting against the whole idea of Plato and his ideal forms that we only see a reflection of what's real and what is actually experienced is not really real. We have to experience the ideal forms. And I think Epicurus's canon was a way to say, no, there's an external world out there. We have access to it and there's nothing behind it that we have to understand first before we can understand, quote unquote, the truth. Don, I think everything you said is exactly correct. I don't know that it takes us as far as we need to go, though, because clearly Epicurus was living in a world in which what you've just described in terms of Plato's cave analogy and so forth was the dominant way of looking at things. Plato was saying that the senses cannot provide you the truth. But if we really try to dig further into that allegation, what is it that the senses do provide? Through the senses, you can eventually come to the truth, but are the truth and the senses the same thing? Is the data, or whatever words you want to use to describe the sensation or the stimulus that comes from the eye, is the eye reporting to you that what you're seeing in front of you is a horse? You're using the eyes, but is it the eye that makes the judgment that what you see is a horse? Oh, no, no. No, the eye is merely a way for the, oh, let's just go all in and say the the eye is the way that the images will impact your anticipations and then it moves on from there. So the, the eye itself or the sensations themselves do not do the identification of what you're looking at, whether it's whether it's a horse or justice or the gods. Right. I think that's clearly the starting point. I think it's pretty clear in what Epicurus has written and in what Diogenes Lurchus has written that error, the opinion that turns out to be either true or false, that is not a part of the sense of sight. Do you agree with that? Right, right. Because, of course, where I'm going to take this next would be if we start with the sight and the eyes as a particular example, we can pretty easily extend that to the ears and to the nose and to the taste and the sense of touch that the data or information, and even those words are problematic. Is information mean a concept? What does information mean? The stimulation or the sense, I'm going to use the word stimulation maybe. Does the stimulation that's received through the eyes or the nose or the ears and so forth, those stimulations are not themselves true or false. Those stimulations are taken, it seems, by the brain or the mind or whatever you want to call it in ancient Greek terms, those stimulations are brought into the brain and then evaluated so as to produce an opinion, which is either true or false. Now, somebody stop me there if you think that that's poorly stated. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely poorly stated, but if it's inaccurately stated and clearly wrong, somebody stop me. But I think that with the five senses, we have a pretty clear consensus that it is not the fault of the eyes or the ears or the sense of touch if the animal in front of us turns out to be an elephant instead of a horse. It's in our minds that we make that judgment as to what the animal is. Okay. And then, of course, you get into, you know, what is the mind? So there, there's a right, well, that's where we're, 
<laughs> yeah, that's clearly where we're going to go. Absolutely right. I, I do want to say I looked up here in Diogenes where the quotes about the canon and everything that the word that's used for truth is aletheia, which I find interesting in the LSJ dictionary that it says that it's truth, reality, as opposed to appearance, which I think is an interesting way to state it, too. So they are our connections to reality as opposed to an appearance, which I would again say that that was sort of the way that Plato put it. So we're only seeing appearances, whereas Epicurus is saying we're actually seeing reality. Okay, now let's talk about what reality means for just a second, because it's either in Diogenes Laertius or perhaps it's in the letter to Herodotus. And I don't know if I'll say it in a way that you can recognize it, but it seems to me that there is a statement in these sections here that the truth of the sensations is guaranteed by their what amounts to repetitiveness. Does that ring a bell? It rings a bell, but I can't think of the specific statement that you're referencing. And one reason it rings the bell with me is because one of these translators uses the word apperception, which I always stumble over when I read it. And the truth yeah, of the senses is guaranteed helpful. by apperception. Yeah. <laughs> <That's helpful. laughs> it's not. But it seems like the way you end up concluding something is true is through the repetition of observation. You get closer to the tower to see that it's square versus round, and you repeatedly get the same observation over and over and over again. You test the fact that the oar is straight instead of bent by taking it out of the water, repeatedly looking at it from different perspectives over time, maybe even checking your observation against what other people nearby are seeing. All the observations, all the consensus begins to converge on one conclusion, and that's the way you test truth is through repetition. Does that seem reasonable? With the understanding, Cassius, that it is not the eyes or the sight that has a memory of any previous observations, that's all happening in the brain. Absolutely. But does the mind ever appeal to anything other than the repetition of the sight through the eyes in order to judge whether the ore is straight or not? Of course, you can touch it and test it through other observations through the five senses, basically. But I think basically where you end up is that your conclusion as to what is true is validated through repeated observation through the senses. I think I just found the section that it's talking about the images and they move with rapid motion. And this again explains why they present the appearance of the single continuous object and retain the mutual interconnection which they had in the object when they impinge upon the sense, such impact being due to the oscillation of the atoms in the interior of the solid object from which they come. That might not be the exact one you're talking about. That's talking about the continuous flow of the uh, the images, I think. Well, but that would be an example of the situation, yes. And I may not be able to find it while we're on the podcast today, but I know that there is a straightforward sentence. Were you reading from Herodotus or Valais? I or what? Believe, I'm reading from, I believe, Herodotus. I'm just scrolling back here. It's uh, section 50 on Diogenes Laertius. So, yeah, it's from the letter to Herodotus. Okay, it's endogenes Laertius. It looks like it's line 32 or so. Nor is there anything which can refute the sensations, for a similar sensation cannot refute a similar because it is equivalent in validity, nor a dissimilar a dissimilar, for the objects of which they are the criteria are not the same. Nor again can reason, for all reason is dependent upon sensations, nor can one sensation refute another, for we attend to them all alike. And here's the sentence. Again, the fact of apperception confirms the truth of the sensations. 
Now, we would have to read up and see what apperception is defined as, but I think when I've checked that up in the past, that's what it boils down to, is that sentence in line 32, the fact of repeatedly perceiving it over and over is what confirms the truth of the sensations. I think it would be illogical to think that there's anything else. I mean, that's the whole point of the Epicurean position that all sensations are true, basically, is that there's nothing higher. You just can't get behind the sensations in making judgments about reality. And if your reasoning cannot be confirmed through sensation, then your reasoning is highly suspect at the very least. And so I'm looking at the Perseus one and Hicks says, nor can one sense refute another since we pay equal heed to all and the reality of separate perceptions guarantees the truth of our senses. Yeah, separate perceptions has always meant to me that you're just repeatedly over and over uh, comparing them against each other. And the only reason I bring that one up is because I have no idea what an apperception is. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. Exactly. I think I think I was reading from Bailey there and it's always bothered me. But exactly. Good old Bailey. Yes, exactly. Exactly. If you just continue on into 33, Bailey translates the concept they speak of as an apprehension or right opinion or thought or general idea stored in the mind. So I just can't let that go by. Bailey collapses this whole concept of prolepsis, preconception, anticipation, and just decides to call it a concept, which in my view just totally buries the the subtlety and, and significance of what's going on here. But let me go back for just a minute. So if what the senses provide to us is not truth, but sort of a ruler and data by which we can measure whether it's true, then, of course, we would want to extend that also to the feelings. We haven't reached that section of the chapter yet, but I think we're going to be able to successfully apply that to the feelings as well. But it seems many of the commentators will agree that it itself is not an opinion. It's like if you're looking for something that you can have confidence in that's not cheating you or misrepresenting itself or giving you its own agenda about something, then it's got to be something that does not have its own opinion baked into it. The eyes don't have baked into it that this item that you're looking at is a horse. As Joshua said a minute ago, the eyes don't have memory. The eyes aren't doing this computational calculation of whether this thing in front of you is a horse or not. It's just reporting data to you just like some peripheral on a computer is, is inputting data into the processor, and it's in the processor that the data is translated into something intelligible. So if that's the meaning of the senses as part of the canon of truth, it seems to me that we're going to have to have a parallel in the anticipations as well. And this is one of the big controversies here. For example, Bailey's telling you that an anticipation is, in fact, a concept. I've never understood how you can have a concept without having thought about something a lot and come to an opinion and a conclusion about what the concept means. It's almost like a definition. You have to think about it. But the real important part is is that there's no opinion injected into it. Right, right. And I would say that we have to come back to it. Seems to me that the parts of the canon are always talked about in their relation to very pre let's say pre-rational, or there's no yes. um, specific cognition. Our reason and everything acts upon the canon, the components of the canon. And I think we can agree that Epicure sees a role for, you know, reason in our lives and, you know, cognition and that sort of thing. But what that is built on needs to be connected to truth, reality, 
the real, what, however you want to term that. And then we can take those building blocks and we can move on from there. We can't go from reason and talk about reality divorced from our senses and our feelings and our preconceptions, which we, I guess, we'll talk about in a little while. But yeah, so so the, that's that's my thing that if you're talking about anything that has to do with the can, it has to be some sort of pre-rational, pre-reason thing. Yeah, just like a yardstick. You, you exactly. Couldn't talk about a, you couldn't talk about a yardstick as having reason or, or making decisions or anything like that. It's just a yardstick. Exactly. By the no, way. I think, I, yeah, that's a really good <laughs> analogy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. In uh, Trafalgar Square in London, there there's a plaque by, I think, one of the, maybe the portrait gallery. I can't remember. Um, but it's got the imperial measurements on the side of it. The reason it's there and not somewhere else is because it was in Parliament, but in 1834, Parliament burned down. So they actually had it cast into bronze and put in three different places in London. It was so important to have this. And they couldn't keep it in one place because, of course, they'd already (laughs) seen what happens when you do that. So So, so it was basically like redundancy whenever you save a file in, in in disparate locations. So there's always one available. Yeah, yeah. And you pick places that you know we're never going to go away. Trafalgar Square is never going to be plowed under, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Oh, that's very cool. I was unaware of that. So that's a perfect analogy, yeah. Now is the challenge of which direction we want to go into next. Everybody does basically the same thing. They go first to Diogenes Laertius because he appears to give us something that ought to be a clear explanation of what anticipations are. And then you go and compare that to what Valeus says in Cicero's On the Nature of the Gods, and you come up with something significantly different. But the place to start is probably with Diogenes Laertius here, because if this were acceptable, we would not have any further questions about the meaning of what we're talking about. But just about everybody finds reason to criticize this we could take a minute and comment about Diogenes Laertius. He's done a great job, it seems like it's essential source for us for information about the opinions of these important philosophers from the Greek world. But you can imagine today sitting down and trying to prepare a similar work, just what a monumental task it would be to try to bring together all of this wisdom from all of these different philosophers who thought so many different things. And one observation about that, which I think has hit home with me over the years in reading about this, is that the commentators seem to say that Diogenes Laertius was living in either 1 or 2 or 300 AD, and he was writing in Greek. And at the time he was living, he was, of course, writing to people at that stage of philosophic development who were familiar with not only Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, the pre-Socratics, but also all of the development that had been done through the popularity of Stoicism and other types of Platonic thought in the intervening centuries. And so I've seen people allege that Diogenes Laertius came up with sort of a formula that he wanted to repeat about each of these philosophers, the important points they made on a particular set of subjects. And so because the Stoics were so influential and had developed such an elaborate theory of logic and knowledge, Diogenes Laertius was apparently writing in that context of people who would have understood what they were talking about. So it's very easy to become, I think the word is anachronistic, and apply standards of 300 AD that might not have been in the mind or, or certainly were not in the mind of Epicurus when he was writing. And it's easy for the concepts of one philosophy to merge into the concepts of another philosophy when you're writing at a relatively high level. But anyway, this 33 is the key passage in Diogenes Laertius. Yeah, and don't, and don't I, I, I think I remember reading somewhere even that whenever 
Diogenes Laertes uses the word catalepsis, which is the other word that comes in later in that cert 33 in, in the Greek, that that's actually more of a Stoic term that he's trying to explain an Epicurean term using a Stoic term because that's more prevalent whenever he's writing and that sort of thing. So it all goes into that, exactly what you were saying, that it might be a little anachronistic the way he's even describing the way that the Epicureans saw the anticipations. Yes, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I keep reading that the Stoics really spent a lot of time because the Stoics were really focused on this world of logic and what's going on in the mind as much as anything else. And their terminology became the standard terminology. And so you can use a word in a Stoic sense that might be the same word that Epicurus might have used, but he would have meant it in a very different way. And don't I remember reading somewhere that, that whether it was Diogenes or someone that said that or maybe it was Cicero that said that Epicurus was the first one to use the word prolepsis in the way that he used it. I know I've read exactly that. Yes. Yes. It was an innovation of him to use the term in that way. And I think Emily Austin in our interview with her said that uh, Epicurus's writings tend to be very technical and very, um, you know, that he, he coins words and things like that for, for concepts that he's trying to get across. And so that's one of the difficulties in even translating him from the Greek. Well, it probably makes sense to just quickly read 33 here. Let me go through it very fast. The concept they speak of, and again, every time he uses the word concept, it should be, I may, in fact, I may actually substitute. I'll just go ahead and say preconception when he says concept. The preconception they speak of as an apprehension or right opinion or thought or general idea stored within the mind. That is to say, a recollection of what has often been presented from without. As, for instance, quote, such and such a thing is a man, unquote. For the moment the word man is spoken, immediately by means of the preconcept, his form, too, is thought of as the senses give us the information. Therefore, the first signification of every name is immediate and clear evidence, and we would not look for the object of our search unless we have first known it. For instance, we ask, is that standing over there a horse or a cow? To do this, we must know by means of a preconception the shape of a horse or a cow. Otherwise, we could not have named them unless we previously knew their appearance by means of a preconception. So the preconceptions are clear and immediate evidence. Further, the decision of opinion depends on some previous clear and immediate evidence to which we refer when we express it. For instance, how do we know whether this is a man? That's supposed to give us a complete understanding of oh, there what you preconceptions go. about. Thank I, I, you very what, much. I guess we're all done. Thank you very yes, much. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and, of course, my preliminary comment every time we come across that passage is I always say, to me, it's, that seems to be describing the reasoning process of once you've grown up long enough to have seen a couple of horses or seen pictures of them in a book, your mind's going to prepare a definition or a picture of what it means to be a horse. And then the next time you see an animal that looks like that, you remember that prior picture of a horse and conclude that, well, that new animal is a horse, too. And I think everybody would accept that that process does occur in the human mind. I don't think that's controversial at all. The question is whether that is a complete description, is whether that even fits within a canon of truth that is supposed to be non-rational. Well, see, the the thing that I think I find interesting is that the thing I think I find interesting, that's that's a convoluted way to put that. But I think that the commentators seem to say, 
I've seen some say that it seems like the words come first and then they refer to other things, whereas other people say, well, the preconceptions come first and then language grows out of that. And I think that the latter makes more sense to me, at least from an Epicurean standpoint, because it has to be, again, if it's a part of the canon, we're saying that the the preconceptions, the prolepsis, you know, whatever, however you want to term it, have to have that pre-rational component to them. And so the way that, I mean, I'll, I'll throw my cards on the table here. So I think that in my mind, what happens is that we have the sensations and sensations are just raw data coming in, just, you know, pixels on a screen, just random pixels on a screen. What it seems to me, and I think I've seen some commentators say this, is that the prolepsis is our ability to discern patterns in those sensations, in that sensory input that's coming in. And over time, if those similar configurations of input coalesce and we see we, we we get impacted with you know the images of a horse and we see the that and it sort of we reinforces that this pattern that i'm seeing is a separate part of reality there's a pattern here that corresponds to something and then that something is then what we are if we're instructed later on in life you know as, as we're growing up and we're acquiring language it's like oh well that pattern that you see we're going to refer to that as a horse now, whether you're going to refer to it as a horse or an equus or whatever other word you want to use in your particular language, that group of sounds conforms to this pattern that you're seeing in reality. So I think that those words grow out of. So then later, whenever you do see the word, then you've already sort of imprinted the fact this pattern that I have recognized as a cohesive pattern over repeated experiences, that that refers to this thing. So it, it seems to me that it goes from the pattern recognition to the language and it's but it seems like some of the commentators want to say that 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 the words make the patterns visible or make the patterns meaningful but i think that the patterns themselves are meaningful before there is a word that's attached to them and i probably rambled on there a little longer than i should have but that's that's uh, that's that's at least sort of what's rolling around in my mind as, as we're talking here so what part of what you have just described is the anticipation if somebody were to ask you to give me an example of an anticipation, what part of what you've just said qualifies as the anticipation? I think that the anticipation is the ability of the person, the mind, the, the whatever, however you want to say that, that recognition of a distinct pattern in reality. So I'm, I'm going back to like babies whenever they're first born. I mean, they're, they're looking around from all things that I've read, they, they basically can't really see that well other than like, you know, like maybe like three inches in front of their face whenever they're first born. And stuff. But as they mature, and I'm saying mature as in a matter of, you know, days, weeks, you know, months, that they, they begin to discern specific patterns that are separate things in their reality. So they can see faces. And I think that's one of the things that they have said that babies can recognize human faces almost within like, you know, days or whatever of them being born. And I may get the time span wrong, but but faces are, since they're an important component of their existence and they need to be able to recognize people as opposed to other things that that, that human face becomes recognizable within, you know, a very short time of being born it's because you're, you're placing a lot of responsibility on the, this, this human face and the human face is going to provide you pleasure and pain and then that sort of thing. So you, you want to be able to recognize a, a, a face 
And then, but later on then, as you get older and you begin to acquire language, then there's individual components of that pattern that are picked out. So you have, you know, first of all, there, there, there's a face. Babies can't put words to it, that sort of thing. But um, they recognize the pattern itself. And I think the recognition of that pattern as distinct to other things in their world is what a prolepsis is. It's, it's that ability to recognize patterns distinct. And so I'm, I'm looking at a cactus, I'm looking at a tomato, I'm looking at a banana, I'm looking at a tea kettle. And those are all separate things. It's not like one big, because otherwise it's just sensory input coming in and there's no no discernible pattern or anything. The, the, recognizing those patterns, I think, is, is a faculty of the anticipation. Don, before we go to Joshua or anybody else, you've used the word recognize a couple of times. I think we need to really hit the point mm-hmm. that Plato was saying that there's a world of ideal forms out there in some other dimension or in heaven or whatever, and that the process of knowledge and living and thinking is a process of remembering or recognizing these things that are going on in another dimension. And so these patterns or these ideal forms, they existed before we did. In what you've just been saying, when you say you recognize a pattern, when we use the word recognize, we often think of, Mm. oh, I've seen that before. It already exists. But when you're a baby, when you're growing up, you haven't seen these things before. So let's talk about where that pattern comes from. Are you assembling it yourself? And is that assembly what it means to have an anticipation? I don't think so. I think it's it's a matter of, at least in my mind, and we keep using words like mind and recognition. It's, like, it's, it's such a sticky wicket. I think it's just a matter of... I. I think one of the analogies I might even have used on the forum is that the the sensory input are like pixels on a screen and the individual pixels just pick up whether it's going to be red or green or blue or whatever. But if we step back a little bit from the screen, then we can see that, oh, well, these particular pixels seem to hold together in relation to the background. So they there's there, there, there's a pattern there that I'm I'm recognizing just from the sheer fact that there's different colors, there's a different arrangement, there's there's something that holds that that sort of thing together. There's nothing like recognizing it as, you know, it's like, oh, well, this is the, you know, I'm I'm recollecting the ideal form of whatever. No, it's just it's just a matter of these particular group of pixels seem to be separate from this group of pixels by virtue of their color, their shape, their their holding together as a thing. Uh, there, 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 there's a pattern there, there there's a pattern that's recognized there in relation to the other background material that's displayed just from the raw data itself. There's nothing other than that. It's like, well, this this holds together because it, it's it's coming. It, it looks like it holds together, and then as time goes on, if that particular pattern is repeated, then it's like, oh, well, I've, I've seen this pattern before, that sort of thing. Okay, last question before I go to Joshua or somebody else. I think an easy analogy would be text recognition on a computer. A computer, you scan in a fax, you scan in a document. As I understand it, the way that optical character recognition works Mm -hmm. is that the computer is going to take the data that's coming through the scan and compare it to the sample characters that have already been stored in its memory. And so the pattern that it's recognizing is compared against an existing pattern in the computer memory. Obviously, you know where I'm going to go with that kind of question. Right. 
I can certainly see that that happens within the mind in the same way Diogenes Laertius says. You see a series of horses, you prepare a pattern of a horse in your mind, and then you compare future observations against that. But is that what we're talking about? What part of that? Is that the process of anticipation or is anticipation something that occurs before you get to that process? You bring up a good analogy with optical character recognition. But the thing about optical character recognition is that there's a lot of data that's like loaded into. So if you only have a couple of things that you've loaded in to do optical character recognition, it's it's not going to be very good. You load in thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of other things and it begins to recognize that, oh, this is this is an X and this is an R. And it, it makes it more fine tuned that way. That same way I'm seeing it with, for instance, the babies again, that the babies don't recognize distinct things in their environment right away because they haven't had any experience of it. But over time, if the same pattern keeps showing up, that it reinforces things that they've seen before. So there's no there's no ideal forms. There's no nothing. It's just the continued experience of their environment with the sensations coming in and impinging on their their senses, I guess, you know, input coming into their their senses that over time, then they begin to assemble those patterns that I, you know, I, you know that that looks the way that those pixels are arranged looks looks familiar. I think I've seen that before, and over time it reinforces that. So there's no ideal forms at play. There's no. It's just over time that you become more refined in your ability to recognize individual patterns. Okay, I apologize to the other podcasters for I was going on so long without getting you in. Joshua, uh, Martin, Calasini. Talk me down, Joshua. I, Come on. <laughs> I don't know if I'm capable of doing that, but one thing that occurs to me to say, though, is that while patterns don't exist in an ideal realm of forms, they do exist in the mind as a kind of recognition that we have. They also do exist in nature. Right. Right. A horse looks like a horse looks like a horse because horses share a huge amount of the same DNA, basically. The error insofar as error creeps in you know when when greek soldiers go to africa or whatever and they see a horse in the river and bring back the word hippopotamus right which literally means river horse they used pattern recognition to describe this as a horse in a way but in fact it's not a horse so uh i guess i'm still very unclear about how all this fits together but that's that's one thing i could say about it and I bring up the idea, too, that, that it, whenever uh, a toddler is learning, learning to talk, and if they learn one word, if they learn dog, then almost any four-legged animal that they see is a dog. They can look at a horse and call it a dog. They can look at a cat and call it a dog. If there's only dogs living in their house and that, that's been reinforced, that it's like, oh, this little, you know, this animal that runs around on four legs, is it's a dog. And it's like anything they look at, then it's a dog. Yeah, and then yeah. and then as time goes on, then they they begin to refine their their pattern recognition and they're they're reinforced by their parents. And it's like, oh, no, that's not a dog. That's a cat. Oh, no, that's not a dog. That's your brother. That's like let me extend the conversation this way. Another point do it makes. It's one thing for us to be discussing dogs and cats and horses and hippopotamuses. It seems to be probably a much more significant layer of complexity even to talk about abstract ideas. And that leads us into the examples in which Epicurus talks about antithesis himself or uses words that appear to be a reference to this concept occur apparently in only a limited number of situations, one of which is in regard to the gods, another of which is in regard to justice, 
And the third of which is in regard to time, with that one being that there is no anticipation of time that we should be referring to when we think about how long something lasts. And I think that's pretty much the full list of what people think Epicurus himself talked about. If we look to Lucretius, we don't find quite as much clarity that he's clearly talking about anticipations, but we do see lots of examples of him talking about patterns of behavior in animals and and certain things. And then he talks about the issue of whether the gods would have had a pattern for producing the universe and also questions like which comes first. He didn't say the chicken or the egg, but he says, which comes first, the eyes or seeing or the hands or using the hands and and use versus their existence. So there are things in Lucretius that we can compare this question against. But a very good point that DeWitt is raising is this issue of it's one thing to talk about seeing horses and deciding that something's a horse. But once you start talking about abstract concepts, abstract relationships, you certainly don't see them in front of you or touch them or taste them. You certainly have input from those senses, but you get really very far from the five senses when you start talking about things like divinity or justice might be a great example. And so in terms of justice, which is probably a good one to talk about, an anticipation of justice, Is the anticipation just the general pattern of relationships among people? And is that just a matter of data that's coming in that you're going to then process through your mind into questions of capitalism, socialism, slavery, liberty, things like that? Or would anyone suggest that we are born with a conclusion about what is just in a particular situation? at the risk of monopolizing the conversation. But I think that Joshua's even brought this up before that I always go back to whenever they're talking about an anticipation of justice or the, the, the prolepsis of justice is that the research that I see that's done on babies and toddlers and their whole ability to sense fair play and fairness, I think is directly related to that idea of an anticipation of justice or, or however you wanna, whatever word you wanna use. But the whole idea that they are able to discern at, a, at an extremely young age whether a, you know, a puppet is getting treated fairly or not dovetails directly into the idea of a, of a prolepsis of justice. And I don't know whether, I mean, I'm almost convinced you know, that Epicurus would not have any access to that sort of data, but I think that that kind of research points to that kind of thing. And that that's the other thing that I think is interesting about this whole idea of anticipations is that to see how it not only is understood in the ancient texts, but to also see if there is a parallel in modern research into consciousness and the mind. And I personally see a lot of that. So that's another probably a topic for another thread. But that's the idea that I see where we the anticipation of justice is that from a very young age, we're able to discern whether something is seems to be fair or not. Which is not the same as saying that we all have Hammurabi's code inscribed exactly. in our hearts at birth, you know. It's, exactly. It's So when, when Cassius uses the word conclusion advisably in that case, it's not quite a conclusion about justice that kids have. It's usually presents on a, on a more emotional or, or even visceral level than that. Right. It's, it's not something that is could be expressed very clearly even by the people who feel it necessarily when they're young. When we get old, we <laughs> use all kinds of words to describe what we think of when we think of justice. But in newborns and even in some higher level animals, it seems to present this prolepsis of justice as, yeah. as more of a feeling of fairness. 
Yeah, I, I think I remember you even posting on the forum about the the research done with uh, with uh, either chimpanzees or monkeys that that got fed disparate food. One got celery and one got fruit, and they basically threw the celery back at them once the other monkey started getting fruit. Yeah, nobody likes celery. They all want fruit. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, when you use the word nobody likes celery, that's further than we can talk about today. But every time we talk about that example, I wonder this as well, that what you're really saying about that example, that the child has a reaction to the fairness or unfairness, is that the child likes one arrangement, but he doesn't like another arrangement. And it's hard for me to separate that from the feeling of pleasure and pain. So is it the feeling of pleasure and pain that is giving the opinion about justice, or is it some type of a more abstraction that then feeds into the feeling of pleasure and pain and on which you evaluate it there? You know, that gets back into the question of are these three separate faculties? Are they working together? Are they in any way totally independent or what? I think they they definitely have to work together because anytime Mm -hmm. you have a standard of something, you have, you know, for, for instance, you know, literally the, you know, the, the, the standards of, you know, industrial standards when it comes to things like that, that that's a list of things, you know, the, these criteria have to be met. And I think that that's at least sort of analogous to the idea of the, the three legs of the canon or the four legs of the canon. Let's not get into mm-hmm. that, that question. Yeah. But, but I think that I think all the standards work together to say, you know, if you if you have this, this and this, then this is going to be the result. So I think that there ha- there there has to be interplay between the things. I think that they are probably distinct faculties or distinct components, but I think that they all have to hold together like the three legs of a stool. Okay, let me go further now and bring us up to the Valleus material, which everybody compares against what we've been talking about with Diogenes Laertius. And of course, remember, this is Cicero presumably adopting Epicurean texts of his time, which are going to be at least 100 years, maybe 200 years or more before Diogenes Laertius's discussion that we've already been talking about. And so to me, I'm not at all convinced that Diogenes Laertius is more accurate than this material is from Cicero, at least in terms of time. The period this is written in is closer to Epicurus than that of Diogenes Laertius. But however that may be, Here's the important part. Cassius. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Just sort of by way of preface on this whole Diogenes Laertius issue, he is widely considered by classicists, by people who are interested in the biography of ancient philosophers to have been extremely incompetent. And the only mm-hmm. reason he has value is because he's really the only one working in that field. And I think it also bears saying that his biography of Epicurus is also widely considered to be the best of what he has to offer. But we shouldn't assume him to be infallible on any of these points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really I begin to feel sorry for him that he he put together such an incredibly important work and yet people talk about him as if he's totally incompetent. And of course it's I'm sure the truth is somewhere in the middle there. Like you say, it's the best we have in many cases here. But at any rate, here is Cicero talking in his time, 50 BC, about what the Epicureans thought about the gods. He has gone through criticism of the Stoics and the Platonists about how they considered the gods to have been, from an Epicurean point of view, doing ridiculous things. And then here's where it picks up. Vallea says, quote, anyone pondering the baseless and irrational character of these doctrines, again, of the Stoics, the Platonists and so forth, ought to regard Epicurus with reverence and to rank him as one of the very gods about whom we are inquiring. For he alone perceived, first, that the gods exist 
because nature herself has imprinted a conception of them on the minds of all mankind. For what nature or what tribe of men is there but possesses untaught some preconception of the gods? Such notions Epicurus designates by the word prolepsis, that is, a sort of preconceived mental picture of a thing without which nothing can be understood or investigated or discussed. The force and value of this argument we learn in that work of genius, Epicurus's rule or standard of judgment. And again, I'm reading from Epicurus.net if I did not say that previously. And let me go a little further. You see, therefore, that the foundation for such it is of our inquiry has been well and truly laid. For the belief in the gods has not been established by authority, custom, or law, but rests on the unanimous and abiding consensus of mankind, that their existence is therefore a necessary inference since we possess an instinctive or rather an innate concept of them. But a belief which all men by nature share must necessarily be true. Therefore, it must be admitted that the gods exist. And since this truth is almost universally accepted, not only among philosophers, but also among the unlearned, we must admit it as also being an accepted truth that we possess a preconception, as I call it above, or prior notion of the gods. For we are bound to employ novel terms to devote novel ideas, just as Epicurus himself employed the word prolepsis in a sense in which no one had ever used it before. We have then a preconception of such a nature that we believe the gods to be blessed and immortal. For nature, which bestowed upon us an idea of the gods themselves, also engraved on our minds the belief that they are eternal and blessed. If this is so, the famous maxim of Epicurus truthfully enunciates that that which is blessed and eternal can neither know trouble itself nor cause trouble to another and accordingly cannot feel either anger or favor, since all such things belong only to the weak. Okay, it goes further, and there are other comments that are relevant to preconceptions as well, but that is the core that we should now turn and reconcile with Diogenes Lurches to the best of our ability. How do we do that? How do we reconcile seeing horses to being born with an innate conception of the blessedness of the gods? Don't everybody speak at once. <laughs> Joshua, go ahead, please. <laughs> I think what you're probably picking up on here, Cassius, is that this is not the most defensible position that Epicurus has ever articulated, certainly not in my own view. But Montaigne held basically the same position. He said that atheism was monstrous and unnatural. So it's, you know, you could probably forgive uh, forgive this little issue here, but taking the issue seriously for once, I guess, what's the fundamental argument here? The fundamental argument is you look to the guy to the left, you look to the guy to the right, they all seem to have this fundamental belief in the gods. How is it that a whole population of people can come to believe in the gods if, in fact, they don't exist? If they do exist, how do we have any knowledge of their existence? It doesn't come to us through the senses. It doesn't come to us through the feelings. So it would seem to an Epicurean point of view that it would have to come through the anticipations. Yeah. Now, gosh, you said a lot right there. And I think we can eventually find ways to reconcile these positions. It's going to take some work. And so therefore, I don't know whether, again, just like we were talking about Diogenes Laertius potentially being not the greatest authority, we also have to consider that this Valais material is somehow 
corrupted through Cicero or just not the best authority or had been changed since the time of Epicurus himself. And so I always take the position myself that I'm not going to accept any position about Epicurus that doesn't seem to reconcile with the original core positions that he took, like in the letter to Herodotus or even the letter to Menorchius about these issues. So clearly later on in this discussion, he starts talking about how the gods look like humans, maybe, and how they even speak Greek or a language like Greek and so forth. And there, when you get into those very specific speculations, I certainly would be extremely reluctant to accept those as being good core Epicurean theory. But if you start back with, again, this whole idea of the canon of truth being a measure and not content, it's probably possible to go into this material and end up concluding that the only real preconception that we're talking about here is that the gods are blessed and deathless, essentially. Incorruptible. 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 I want to throw a fly in the ointment here just because I found this the other day and found it kind of fascinating. There is a section in Paul's letter to the Romans that really struck me. I, I was watching something completely unrelated on YouTube, and they brought this one up. But I dug into the Greek, and they don't use the exact same words as are used in Cicero or in Epicurus. But I thought the sentiment was just eerily the same. And so if anybody's interested, it's Romans 1, verse 18. And if you'll let me um, share this here, it says, the, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth of their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And that just seems eerily the same as you know, everybody has a prolapse of the gods and everybody believes the gods exist and that sort of thing. I, I just found that just, just mm -hmm. a, an odd parallel. Yeah, Don, there's a very important distinction, though, because Epicurus would never have ended it with people are without excuse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What, Epic, what Epicurus says about the gods is that it's not impious to not believe in the gods. It's impious to believe about the gods anything that is foreign to their nature. Exactly. Um, which is a much more sensible and I think hopeful point of view. <laughs> right. Don, especially since you've gone through the letter to Menorca so closely, can you tell us that part at the opening where he talks about that these beliefs about the God are not true anticipations, but false opinions or whatever? If you can parse that language right there about whether he's really talking about anticipations and how he phrases that. Are you able to do that? I will uh, actually I have it up here. I, I will uh, use my, my own translation just because that's the one I have pulled up here. But anyone who it's um, the section 123 of the letter to Menoikius, and it says, first believe that the God is a blessed and imperishable thing as in the common general understanding of the God. You, Menoikius, believe everything about which a God is able to reserve its own imperishability and blessedness for itself. Do not attribute anything foreign to its incorruptibility or incongruous with the blessedness of the God. Gods exist, and the knowledge of them is manifest to the mind's eye. The gods do not exist in the way that the hoi polloi believe them to, because they do not perceive what maintains the gods. One is not impious who does not take up the gods of the hoi polloi, but the one who attributes the beliefs of the hoi polloi to the gods. I just like that hoi polloi, so that's mm -hmm. why I left it in there. For what they believe are not prolepses, but rather the judgments of the hoi polloi concerning the gods, which are false, hasty assumptions. 
Okay, so now see, that's always been confusing to me there, too. So he's saying that their opinions are not prolepsies, what they believe right. are not prolepsies. Does that mean that they're not prolepsies because they're false opinions or because they're just simply not prolepsies at, at all? If you see where I'm going think, there, what? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right because they, they um, it goes on to say, so they believe the greatest evils are brought to the wicked from the gods as well as the greatest aid to the good because the hoi polloi are believing that the gods accept those who resemble themselves, who are similar through all excellences and goodness, and all those not of their sort are strange and alien. So they're believing that the, – so the hoi polloi, the, the masses, the crowd, the, the, the general public believes that the gods bestow blessings and, and punish people and that sort of thing. And that's not part of the, the prolepsis that he's talking about. That He's talking about imperishability and blessedness. Those are the only things that seem to be part of that prolepsis of the gods. And anything that's added on top of that, like like Joshua mentioned, like like Paul talking in Romans about you know the, the God's power and, and divine nature, that sort of thing is is not that's a that's a false opinion according to Epicurus. Does true and false apply only to opinions, or does it apply to sites and prolepses? Can a prolepsis be true or false? Mm, I think a prolepsis is, I mean, it's included in the canon. So I think that it has to be taken as a, a measurement of reality. Let's use, let's use reality instead of truth. So I think that the prolepsis of the gods is a reflection of reality. And then anything that's added on top of that is a false opinion. I don't think that you can say the prolepsis itself is, to go back to what I was saying before, is, is the pattern that we recognize in the real world. And so he seems to be saying that, that the gods are part of the real world. Now, whether it's the idealist approach or whether it's the, you know, the, the actual you know, existing gods approach, you know, that's, that's a whole other conversation as well. But I think that that's the, the only thing that's part of the prolepsis is this you know, idea that, that there is a blessed and imperishable thing well, out there in the uh, world. And that's exactly what I would then ask. Is the statement that the gods are blessed and let's use the word incorruptible. The gods are blessed and incorruptible. Is that statement a prolepsis? Because mm, I can easily mm, see mm, that statement mm. being an opinion and an right. assertion that is not right. a prolepsis. I will say that I go, I go back whenever we're talking about this this sort of one, the same way that I look at the, the research with the babies and the toddlers with that. The, the other one that I use is sort of the innate capacity to feel awe and wonder at things that are, you know, bigger than ourselves. I mean, I get, I think that I remember seeing some research done that, that, that kids will be more interested in things that sort of impress them as, you know, somehow novel or somehow new or somehow it's not, it's not the way I want to go, but I seem to remember there, there's some sort of innate capacity and even, even for adults, there's some innate capacity to feel awe and wonder at things that, that are sort of bigger than ourselves. And I see that as at least Probably not exactly what Epicurus was talking about, but at least parallel or adjacent or or those kinds of words. Now, let me you use the word monkey wrench or something like that a few minutes ago. Let me throw this at you. Several of us have recently come into contact with some of the writings of David Glidden about anticipations. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm reading about the direction that he was or hopefully still is going is that it would be important to think of everything as a naturalistic phenomena right. that we're not by talking about words creating something that then exists floating in the air somewhere. Right. I say that because I suppose I could see the possibility that a prolepsis 
is just a particular snapshot of a received image in our mind Mm -hmm. that then has to be processed into an opinion. In other words, that, of course, we have all this discussion in the Epicurean text about receiving images of the gods. Is a prolepsis, and that's even sorry to interrupt. But that's even one of the inter- that's even one of the interesting things that I've seen too, because the manuscript tradition, from what I understand, both has the images flow to the gods, mm-hmm. and then some have interpreted say, well, that can't be right, so it has to be you know from the gods. But from what I understand, the actual ma- earliest manuscript traditions say that the images flow to the gods, which is where I think Sedley and some of the others get the whole you know that we we create images of the gods or we create you know concepts of the gods and that we're the ones that are actually preserving the gods incorruptibility and like i said that's a whole other conversation but that 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 whole idea whenever you mentioned that i just wanted to throw that in there that that is fascinating because it seems clearly that the epicureans were saying that the gods exist you know Mm -hmm. whether it's idealist or reality or whatever it seems clearly that they were expecting other people to believe that they really believed in gods right and right. yet, and because, yet, why? Yeah, because yeah, because I've seen you know, the arguments that oh, you know, Epicurus just said these kinds of things, and he believed in the gods because he was afraid of the authorities, and he was afraid of being, you know, brought up on trial for atheism and impiety and that sort of thing. So oh, he didn't really, he didn't really think that. But I'm like, I mean, he says it clearly in the letter to Menoikius, you know, gods exist. You know, it's it's a very blunt statement. It's basically a two word statement if you pull out the 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 other parts of that 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 aren't particularly you know relevant to that particular structure in, in the grammar but it, i mean he literally just says you know gods exist but the specific part you pointed out to about the images flowing to the gods as right. opposed to from the gods apparently is well established in the text as you were saying and yet th- that's so counterintuitive to what we would expect to see right. if we're thinking about images flowing from the gods but right. okay gosh where were we in the big scheme of this um <laughs> We just been throwing uh, monkey me... wrenches at each other. Like, yes, that's right. Time. Oh, I'm talking. We're talking. I was going to talk about David Glidden, but go ahead, uh, Joshua. I was going to follow up on Don's reading of Paul's letter to the Romans. Actually, go ahead. Go Be- ahead. Because because the next passage, starting at 21, says, "For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened." And as you go on, he says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. He's, it could be talking about the Greeks here in general, could be talking about the Epicureans here in particular, particularly in that first and the Egyptians, too, with the, uh, the animals and the reptiles. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The next thing is goes right into sexual impurity and immorality. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Paul's problematic on any number of levels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did find that though that whole idea there that you know god you know is is knowledge of him is plain and clear and you know people mm-hmm. people should be able to see it and that sort of thing i'm like uh, that that at least has parallels to what what epicurus was trying to get across with the prolepsis that you know everybody you know the, the gods exist obviously because everybody you know has a prior idea of them i know we give grief to norman dewitt about his saint paul and epicurus <laughs> and his constant discussions back and forth with are you looking at me are you looking at yes me? i am looking at you but <laughs> and i i share your same concerns absolutely but I think there's a certain number of people out there and i'm probably one of them who find that angle fascinating and who would really profit from reading his book on saint paul and epicurus and 
deciding whether Epicurus was really the Antichrist or an an Antichrist or whatever in some of the discussions that Paul is talking about. But again, that is definitely a tangent. Let's go back for just a minute to David Glidden and considering prolepsis to be naturalistic type of phenomena. And the point being that these prolepsis could be interpreted as, again, highly analogous to whatever it is, the eyes and the ears and the nose are doing as bringing us information about the outside world. Somehow, this faculty of having a prolepsis is doing something very similar to that, that it's not rationally processing what's coming to us from the outside, but that it is somehow allowing us to recognize something that we would not have recognized without this faculty of anticipations. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I like to think of an analogy in terms of that the eyes recognize light within certain wavelengths. If you go too high wavelength or too low, the eye doesn't recognize it anymore, at least doesn't process it to us. And therefore, perhaps somehow these prolepses also have some type of methods of functioning or dispositions of functioning to allow us to process information in a certain way, but not give us an opinion about it before we start rationally evaluating it. And and I think that's where the whole idea that that I'm, at least that I'm coming around to, unless I read something new and it changes my mind completely, that the whole idea that that we have sort of the, the sensations give you raw data, the anticipations give you the ability to discern patterns and pull them out of the background of all the, the noise that's coming in from your various and sundry perceptions. And then the reason can kick in and start to apply labels and apply words to those patterns that you've recognized. But the, the patterns come first that are pulled from that noisy background of, of the, the real world that, that comes flooding into our brains. Don, I, again, it would take us into next week probably, but I think the part that I would add to that is you're talking about the senses providing us this data, the anticipations providing us this data, and the sense of pleasure and pain telling us whether we like it or not. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, 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 uh, it gives you the, the, the feelings give you a, a pre-rational evaluation of do I approach this or do I flee from it? Basically, that that idea. So let me ask you this question, because the classic example in Epicurean philosophy was the square tower that looked round from far away. Mm-hmm. What part of that process does the prolepsis become involved? You've got the senses that are just taking in the light reflected from the tower, right? Presumably, then the prolepsis gets involved there. Right. I, is, I would say, it, I, yeah, I would say, I would, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, I was just, the, the next question was going to be, is it the prolepsis that makes the mistake about whether the tower is round or square? Or is it just the prolepsis that recognizes it as a tower? I would say it's just the prolepsis that recognizes it as a, it, or it's the, it's the prolepsis that recognizes it as just a tower. It's, it's sort of like, you know, it, you oh my see, gosh, are you gonna are you gonna say the prolepsis recognizes something? No, 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 no. Just hold just okay. hold your horses. Hold, hold your horses, hold your four-legged beasts there. Okay. Hold your dog. <laughs> hold your dog. So I would say that so so the, the sensory data is coming in from the outside world. It's impinging on you, and then the prolepsis, you've seen structures in the past. You've seen so so you can you can recognize the pattern. You can recognize the pattern. It's like, oh, there's something in the distance there. You know, it looks like a structure. You get closer. Oh, you know, okay, the thing. Then it looks like a tower, and then they get closer. Then oh, it's a it's a square tower, not a round tower. But it's it's the ability to fine tune. It's like it. You know, I would and this just came to me, but I would I would use the analogy of a pair of binoculars 
that if you don't have them focused right, you're just going to see a big blurry field of blue and gray and green and whatever. If you start to focus them a little bit, you can see, oh, okay, yeah, the, there is there is a, a structure there in the distance. You fine tune it, you turn them a little bit more, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a that's a that's a square tower there in the distance that that, that I see now that I can I can recognize that pattern as a as a uh, thing. But it's through the repeated experiences of seeing structures and towers and round towers and square towers and houses and horses and dogs and you, you know that it's not it's not one of those other patterns that it's been ingrained in your in your mind that you, that particular pattern then you can put a label on it sort of backfilling it and saying oh okay yeah that's that's a it's a structure it's a tower it's a square tower does that make any sense at all well he was asking what part of that process is the prolepsis I think the prolepsis is the ability to discern that pattern from the background of all the other sensory data that's coming in. So you, you're able to set apart the fact that that pattern is recognized as a, a, a discrete thing in reality, that that ability to pull that pattern out of the background yeah, information like that. is the prolepsis. I like that part of your description. Yes, almost like a focusing ability or right, a, right. the focus knob. Old televisions used to have all these different knobs on the front. To, you'd have focus, sharpness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even even like an old television, too. If you're sitting right up next to the screen of an old television with all the red, blue and green pixels, mm-hmm. you can't discern a pattern until you sort of like, like there, there's I can see all the dots here, but it doesn't make any sense. And if, as you pull back farther, then these things coalesce into a face. These things coalesce into a house. And through repeated uh, impinging of your senses with that that data over time, from the time that you're born till you know throughout your life, that those sorts of things are that, that there's a there's a discernible pattern here that I can see this thing that it's a discrete packet of a pattern that is a discrete thing in the world. And I think you can even do this too. Like I mean, some of the uh, you know I've seen pictures of some exotic fruits and things like that that are you know, I, I have no idea what it's called. I have no idea what it what it is. If you just see a picture of it, you know, it's like, you know, what is that? But you your your mind can go, well, you know, we've we've noticed this pattern before. People are eating this thing, you know, it's a fruit. As far as you know, what it's called in its individual environment, I have no idea, but I can at least recognize it as a fruit. And it's sort of the same way in my mind as the the tower, that if you see it from from a distance or if you sort of like don't really understand what you're seeing. You know, you're going to say you're going to give it the widest possible word in your own language as you can, but you still recognize it as a discernible pattern in reality. But the more that you fine tune your ability to discern, you're you're not fine tuning your ability. Well, I guess you're fine tuning your ability to discern patterns. But as far as language goes, language comes way down the line then, because I think I still think I see some commenters trying to say that language comes first and then the ability to have language is what makes the 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 prolepsies and i don't think that's 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 right at all i like what you said don about the prolepsis having the is the thing that lifts it out of the background as a distinct thing right and and interestingly enough you can almost test this because there are certain types of blindness that can be cured and have been cured and what they notice about people who gain sight for the first time later in life, in other words, not right when they're born, is that the way they see things tends to be far more two-dimensional than the way people see things who have had sight their whole lives. Um, oh, that's fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's not research I'm very well familiar with, but I do remember that part. So it's interesting that the prolepsis seems to have this ability. Um, but it, it's not it just like it's not an innate concept. It's, it's a faculty like the right. senses that develops over time. Right, right, right. right. Okay, let me try to eventually bring us down to the conclusion for the episode on a halfway normal link by going to because we we've been joking about this since we first started discussing it that this is such a unclear topic that taking too firm a position is not advisable and it's it's very smart to hedge your bets and I think every time I read an article from a new commentator I come to a new conclusion about the topic so it's just something that, that really you need to be flexible about. But to try to come back to the scheme of what we're doing in the podcast right now, on page 148 of Epicurus Philosophy, DeWitt has a section entitled Later Evidences, in which he begins to come to conclusions about this. And let me read some of this very quickly. He says, the word prolepsis, once launched by Epicurus as a technical term, was taken over by the Stoics, who cribbed freely from the sect they vilified. It still enjoyed vogue in Cicero's time, but the sharp edges of the original idea had suffered detrition through careless handling. The Stoics had developed the study of formal logic, and one ingredient of this was the general concept. This denotes the essential attributes of the subject under examination, and if the thinker be not too meticulous about his categories, it's permissible to speak of the general concept of either justice or an ox. Then by familiar semantic shift, it became possible to speak of the prolepsis of an ox, just as people call a lighting fixture a chandelier, even if candles have been replaced by gas or electricity. As Epicurus employed the term, however, it was no more possible to have a prolepsis of an ox than of a duct-billed platypus or a caterpillar tractor. The preexistence of the idea in advance of experience was essential. And I'm not sure that really clarifies anything mm. there either, but it does maybe begin to bring home that we have all sorts of problems in this discussion that the terminology of formal logic, especially developed through the Stoics, became such an important part of the philosophical discussion in the years after Epicurus that it's very difficult to sort out what Epicurus was saying versus what we have understood in more recent years as just the general understanding of things. So that's one of the things that everybody needs to understand is that the Stoics used a similar term. It's very easy when you start reading the commentators, maybe use the identical term, I should say, not just similar. The, the words have so many different meanings to them that it's important to not get wedded to a Stoic understanding of prolepsis and fail to understand what Epicurus was saying. And actually, that's one of the things about this recent David Glidden material that we've been reading that has appealed to me. It seems to me that Glidden focuses on that problem, says you should not only be very skeptical of what Diogenes Laertius was saying, you should also be skeptical of what Valeus was saying and try to go back to what Epicurus most likely would have been saying, given his physics and the way he thought the body and nature worked that all of this may be much more of a, I use the word naturalistic. I'm not sure if that's what his- Materialistic, mechanistic? Yeah, yeah. And Don, I was, we were happy to have some correspondence from him. Do you, do you understand what, could you summarize the point that David Glidden made to you recently about where he was going? Are you able to even understand that? Don't have that message up here right now. Did you want me to bring it up and take a look at it? If you it, don't, I, I think we do it very quickly. 
Hold on one second. Let me just something about naturalistic that he was trying to develop a naturalistic understanding. While Don has got the gears spinning over there, one thing we haven't talked about yet today is, you know, you talk about Epicurus originated this new understanding of the word prolepsis. Um, but the the word was in current use already before he appropriated it for his own philosophical needs. And while I've mentioned this before on the podcast, it's probably something to at least mention today since we're talking about anticipations. Prolepsis was the, of course, I have to be careful about language. I'm going to say like this. Prolepsis was the ability of a speaker in a debate to anticipate the counter argument that the interlocutor was going to say in response to what he had just said. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Whether so, that so, has, yeah, no, no, I think, I think, yeah, I think that has, yeah, that has definitely. A, um, I, I was looking up, I was looking up the uh, the definition in the in the LSJ, and they define prolepsis, which I think is kind of interesting, as that their first definition is preconception, mental picture or scheme into which experience is fitted, which I think is kind of interesting because that so. It, it seems to me that we always have to keep in mind that that the uh, the, the prolepsis, the anticipation, it, it comes before. And that whole idea of coming before mm -hmm. is the is important, I think, for emphasis, especially for those who seem to think that, you know, the language sort of imposes itself on these anticipations or something rather than the other way around. I did find Dr. Glidden was nice enough to email me back whenever I had contacted him about our, our interest in his his work. And he says that uh, over a period of 20 years, I had offered a model of Epicurean psychology and epistemology that was entirely mechanistic and did not elevate human nature over other advanced animals. That human beings could, for Epicureans, be devoid of platonic Cartesian consciousness seemed inconceivable to my colleagues at the time. But it was, go ahead. That's a gold star from me because what I often talk about is, is what I call the principle of the cockroach. If you can't explain it, in terms that are also applicable to lower orders of animals, then yep. it probably doesn't really have any bearing. Yeah. Let me paraphrase another part of what you were just reading, Don. He said he was talking about his publication that we're still trying to find. He said at the time of its publication of that article on Epicurean prolepsis, it was readily dismissed by most scholars working in Hellenistic philosophy. The idea of non-cognitive pattern recognition for human beings or animals seemed incoherent to these other scholars. Yet it had an ancient pedigree in Aristotle's and Theophrastus's biological writings on animals, and it had strong contemporary support as an account of physiological perception in animals. I yeah. felt my scholarly colleagues were trapped in a Cartesian presumption of human thought and perception that led them to dismiss Epicurean views or else to humanize them. Subsequently, I published Epicurean Thought as a general model of the human mind, according to the Epicureans, that did not require a ghost in the machine, as it were. That, too, was pilloried by scholars, but embraced by biologists, linguists, and neurologists. I thought that scholars largely ignorant of advanced vertebrate physiology were unable to appreciate a model of the mind that did not presume Cartesian platonic consciousness. So I went on to work on other topics. Well, we're back on that same topic, Mr. Glidden, and I hope that we can perhaps <laughs> get him to Dr. Dr. Glidden. Yes, and I hope we can get Dr. Glidden to give us more information on that. We're looking for his article, and we're certainly not going to be able to stay with anticipations forever. We'll go on to complete our series right now, but this is a topic that we'll no doubt come back to. 
And I do, I do want to do want to uh, bring up that I, uh, I think that it's interesting to not only try and understand the ancient texts themselves and what they're saying and how Cicero and Diogenes and Epicurus understood the word prolepsis, but I think that it's interesting to see the parallel track of modern research into the brain and consciousness and all those sorts of things where the whole idea of the brain as a prediction engine has direct parallels to the idea of the the anticipations and how we use those in in to bring about our, our our consciousness and to understand the world i think there are some definite parallels between there again not saying that epicurus had access to functional mris and things like that that, that they can use in research nowadays but but i think that the parallels again just like his idea of the atoms we know that his idea of the atoms are not you know scientifically accurate or scientifically, you know, perfectly aligned with how we understand atoms now. But his intuition into how the world works is still uncannily modern in any number of ways. And I think even Emily Austin brought that up whenever we had talked to her on the on the podcast as well. Yes, all of this in the context that Epicurus believed that this is the only world that we have, that there is no supernatural universe, no supernatural dimension, and that if we're going to live happily according to nature, we need to understand how it works. And that includes not only understanding pleasure and pain and also senses, but also how the mind is going to assemble ideas and work with them. If we don't understand the way images work, then we fall prey to illusions and misunderstandings about the way things really are. And if we don't understand how our mind processes information, then we also are going to be subject to misunderstandings and poor decision making. Right. So probably now we're at a good point to bring today to a conclusion. And I apologize we haven't brought everybody into the discussion today. Calasini, any thoughts from you today? Uh, no, I have nothing to add. Thank you. Okay. Martin. Nothing to add from me either. Joshua? I'm really glad we had Don on today. I feel like <laughs> this would have been a totally different and far more inept conversation without Don. So thank you. Thank you for being here for that. My only concern, though, is is having read that bit from Dr. Glidden. He mentions a Cartesian view of things. Due to the nature of our podcast, it's possible that we should probably explain what he means by that. I think he's talking there about Cartesian dualism. Mm-hmm. Um, which is this idea that the the body is one thing and the mind is another, and that the rules that the mind operates by are very different from the rules in physical reality. So when he's pushing for an idea of a mechanistic or a physicalist approach to cognitive and psychological ideas, I think that's very promising, and it also tracks very closely to what Epicurus was was doing himself, because he thought that the mind was made of body in a, in essence it was physical in nature and and inextricably linked to the body itself so yeah well put well put don you want to go next well thank you for the kind words joshua that i hope that i didn't just bring a <laughs> bring a toolbox full of monkey wrenches to the uh, conversation today but yeah it is a fascinating conversation and um i think that it the fact that there is so much difference of opinion out there makes it both aggravating and interesting to dig into so um, i'm i'm looking forward to seeing where the uh, where the conversation goes then after uh, after today and using using dewitt as the sort of unifying 
component of the the conversation, I think, is a good idea. So it it allows all these different ideas to come up. Don, you're right. I really appreciate your being with us today and everybody who has participated here in the podcast. You know, you just mentioned all the differences of opinion, and they certainly are there. But in summary, as we conclude today, we probably can go back to those issues that I think everybody agrees on. The differences of opinion, while they are there, do not undercut the general important core of this that Epicurus was developing and identifying for us the fact that the mind can operate in a totally natural way without influence from supernatural beings, without fate telling us that we have to do everything in blind obedience to either the gods or just something else that's been started from the beginning of the world. And that the way that we think is a critically important part of the overall scheme of how we live. And so while we don't know exactly what's involved with the details of his theory of prolepsis, hopefully we'll find some more scrolls and other writings at some point in the future that will give us some more information. But we have plenty to assemble at least that basic background that there is more going on than supernatural intervention, that the important thing here is that there is a very natural way of understanding the way humans think, that we can make a science out of this and learn and study and improve the results of our thinking, just like we can improve the results of our activities and other aspects of life, all towards the goal of living more happily and successfully. We need to come up with an Epicurean equivalent of amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, we're supposed to be living like gods, and uh, amen is something that uh, I guess has a long pedigree of being said in relation to discussions of the best life. And actually, that probably is a good place to close. It's always been interesting how Lucretius talks about Epicurus being virtually a god, and Epicurus talks about living as gods among men. And this whole issue of blessedness is a fascinating subject in itself. Where do these ideas come from? How does pleasure and pain factor into it? And the combination of nature versus nurture, how it all comes together, is something that deserves a lot of attention. Okay, so with that, let's close for the day. We'll come back next week and continue on in Chapter 8. Thank you for your time today. We'll be back next week. Drop by the forum, give us any comments you have, and we'll incorporate them in our future episodes. Thanks, and see you next week. Bye.